It's Monday, December 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A huge court ruling to wipe out Obamacare has revived the healthcare debate and will have far-reaching effects. While a judge ruled that the Affordable Care Act was unconstitutional, the case may not be fully resolved until 2020, which could make it the defining issue of the next election. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to discuss this ruling and the next chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney. Next, the face of retail is changing. There has been a decline of American malls and growing divides between the richest and the poorest Americans. This is causing an increase in big luxury brands, but also the rise of the dollar store as a main shopping destination for many. Erica Pandy, retail reporter for Axios, joins us to discuss how dollar stores are picking apart the market and will be the big retail survivors. Finally, delivery service Postmates is on a mission to build the delivery robot of the future. Postmates has its own robotics division with the goal of building a robot that can navigate streets and people to bring you that burrito that you ordered. Ariel Pardes, senior writer at Wired, joins us to discuss Postmates' robot rover called Serve. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It would knock out funding uh, for treatment of opioids. It would raise drug prices and close the donut hole so seniors would pay more for drug prices. It would eliminate a lot of maternal care, all kinds of women's health. It's an awful, awful ruling. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. There's a huge court ruling on Friday where Judge Reed O'Connor sided with Texas uh, on a lawsuit filed by 20 Republican state attorneys general that was alleging that the Affordable Care Act was unconstitutional. He said that because in 2017, Congress voided the tax penalty for the individual mandate, then everything was unconstitutional because of that. Uh, And there's been reaction all over the place on this, some saying that the ruling was too sweeping and too broad and it would be overturned. Uh, What do we know about this ruling and the implication that that it's going to have? From uh, the position of of how it could affect people's health care, if allowed to stand as is, um, it would potentially uh, undermine the ability of millions of people who use the exchanges. We expect, most people expect that a higher court will put a pause on this decision to allow for other courts to have hearings and make decisions as to whether they agree with this one judge. But it does give President Trump a bit of an excuse to cancel much of the program that he administers. He could try to say that that judge has told him it's unconstitutional and he can't do it anymore. That would likely face other legal challenges. And really what we're looking at is quite a long, years long, maybe legal battle uh, before any of this is settled. Yeah, that's the crazy part. Uh, The administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services said that the exchanges are still open for business. The current law stays in effect for now. But as you were saying, this is just going to be face a prolonged legal battle And some people are saying that this could stay in the courts until 2020 if the Supreme Court wants to take it up. And that leads us directly into the next election, which would make this like the hugest part of that. That's right. This is going to further make health care and the Affordable Care Act a political issue in the 2020 election. We know, looking at polls, talking to voters, that health care is one of the most important issues, particularly on the Democratic side. Um, we just see people telling pollsters that they're concerned about their ability to get health care, that they're concerned that they're going to be able to afford it, that they're concerned 
that the healthcare will stop covering their pre-existing conditions again. Democrats are talking about healthcare and did through the midterm elections quite aggressively for that reason. If you wanted something to make their argument seem more pressing and threatening, this is exactly that. So the Republicans may have scored a legal victory, ultimately could be a political loss for them. And you mentioned the midterms and Republicans were constantly running on, hey, we're going to save those coverage for pre-existing conditions. We're going to let you stay on your parents' health care all the while still supporting this lawsuit. So it was kind of trying to have it on both uh, sides of it during the midterms. And, you know, that's these are the popular parts of the bill that everybody wants to keep. Uh, expansion of Medicaid, the young adults staying on their parents' plans and the pre-existing conditions. So it puts the Republicans in a precarious uh, situation with all of that. It does. It makes it more difficult for them to argue that they are keeping the portions of the law that are popular as they endorse court cases like this one. And it goes against the Republican judicial philosophy. If they didn't like the law, they control both chambers of Congress and the White House. They could have repealed it, but they didn't. And they lacked sort of the votes to be able to do that. So instead, this is a little bit of trying to use the courts to legislate, which is something that Republicans have been uh, the strongest opponents of doing so. Let's move on to some of the White House shakeups. Budget Director Mick Mulvaney has been tapped to be the chief of staff for President Trump now. What do we know about him and the impact he could have on, on the office there? Mick Mulvaney has been named the acting chief of staff. He will take over as Kelly leaves at the end of the month, although he wasn't given the full title of chief of staff. There has been some reporting that Mulvaney might have been the only guy in Washington lobbying for the job. (laughs) I do know of a couple of others, so I don't think he was the only one, but wanted it, very badly wanted this job, a job that many had worried comes with a lot of risks, a lot of liabilities, and maybe wasn't the best job in Washington uh, at this point. Let me ask you about that, because we were talking about how nobody wants his job. And there were reports saying that he wanted this really badly. There was also reports saying that he was the one that asked for the acting title, that he only wanted to serve in the post for no longer than six months or something. Are you hearing anything to that effect? It is a, a potentially a move by Mulvaney to not seem too eager after being one of the only people asking for the job. But Trump has said he wants someone there long term. He wants someone who can ride him through his reelection campaign. He had asked Nick Ayers to do commitment for two years, of which Ayers refused to do. Mulvaney is wearing two hats, has been wearing two hats. We'll put on another hat. And Mulvaney is an interesting choice in that his background as a sort of a flamethrower, backbencher in the House who was opposed to all government spending. Now he's a guy who's out there asking Congress to pass spending bills and keep (laughs) the government open. So a bit of a shift for him uh, from an ideological perspective. Yeah, oddly enough, I mean, his job is going to be to keep the president in check, keep spending in check, improve relations with Capitol Hill. And he's one of the guys that came up with that $5 billion figure at the center of the potential government shutdown. He's uh, stepping into this right at a crucial week when if nothing gets worked out, there could be a shutdown. He is walking into a big mess. This White House, the chief of staff, has had to walk a delicate balance between telling Trump no when he needs to be told no and not upsetting Donald Trump by telling him no or that there are things he shouldn't or couldn't do. Mulvaney has been 
been part of the administration for two years now. He has a sense of the president's demeanor, but that's a tricky balance to have to walk. And there was a lot of praise that Kelly was able to do it when he first came in, has lost that touch or lost the ability at least to do so in recent months. And now Mulvaney is going to have to attempt to find a way to, to do that himself. Yeah, he has a big week and the country has a big week trying to avoid this shutdown. So we'll see what happens. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The dollar stores are doing well because there is even more people who are cash strapped and who need a cheap option for household goods. And during the last recession, they did very well. Retail experts are predicting that if we are heading into another recession, which economic signs are pointing to, the dollar stores will do well again. Joining us now is Erica Pandy, retail reporter for Axios. We are uh, seeing some interesting things happening in the retail sector. We're seeing the malls just going away. A lot of these shops that are geared towards middle income Americans, you know, JCPenney's, Macy's, closing stores all over the country. But one sector that is opening more stores and really doing very well right now are dollar stores, places like Dollar General and Dollar Tree. What do we know about this? The sheer number of dollar stores. We already have 30,000 in the country, and between the two chains, they're adding 1,000 each per year. And you said it, the middle stores are going away. It's really this phenomenon we're seeing. We always hear people say that the death of malls and the apocalypse of brick-and-mortar retail is because of e-commerce and Amazon, but that's really not the case because e-commerce is still only 10% of all retail. What it really is, is this wealth distribution issue. 40 years ago, 50 years ago, the 90% had equal wealth to the top 1% of the country. And now the top 1% has 40% of the wealth and the bottom 90% has 20%. Those middle income shoppers, the middle class who, who went to the gaps and the Macy's and JCPenney's are disappearing. And you're seeing the rise of these very cheap chains like Dollar General, like Dollar Tree, that are becoming a one-stop shop for a lot of Americans who are strapped for cash. Yeah, you mentioned the 30,000 stores that they have that between the two of them, Dollar Tree and Dollar General, between them two combined, they have more stores than the other six biggest retailers, which are like Walmart, Kroger, Costco, Home Depot, CVS, Walgreens combined. And part of it is the stores for middle-income Americans are failing and the dollar stores are popping up in the right spots to hit them. I mean... You know, a lot of people could go shop at like a Walmart or something, but a lot of times they're 40 miles out or, or whatnot. And these dollar stores are popping up right there. They're becoming like the new neighborhood stores. And they're, you know, they're selling everything that you would need from, you know, your light bulbs, uh, shower curtains, things for your home and even food products as well. The CEOs of the, these dollar stores are very upfront about this. Senator Purdue, who is actually the former CEO of Dollar General, said of Walmart, he said, we went where they ate. What it comes down to is these rural towns that maybe have a population of under 5,000, where a big box store wouldn't be able to sustain itself or these urban neighborhoods, which are often predominantly African-American, where there's already kind of a food desert situation going on where there isn't other grocery stores, and they're going in, and sometimes there'll be an independent retailer in town that will be able to compete with the dollar store's rock-bottom prices, so they'll go out of business, and then you've got the situation where it's the only retail option. And yes, it is, they've got, you know, anything from household items to even clothes and to food, 
but, you know, shockingly low amounts of fresh produce. When I visited a, a dollar store specifically with an eye to report this story, you've got cheese nips, cheese its right. fudge stripes, you know, these packaged and processed snacks, which people are putting in their carts for lunch and dinner because there's no other option. You know, we're always talking about disruptors to industries and economies. And a lot of times it's in the tech sector, you know, Uber and Lyft are the tech disruptors for the taxi companies. And in this case, it's these dollar stores, these dollar trees and dollar generals that are doing this. And it's having effects all over the place. Uh, whereas, you know, CVS, Walgreens would, you know, normally sell some of the things that they would sell at these dollar stores. That's why they're building up their pharmacy and medical services just to differentiate themselves. And on uh, the Amazon front, as we were talking about, dollar general typical shopper isn't looking at their pantry, let's say, and say, you know what, I'm running out of this. I'm going to go on Amazon and order five bottles of whatever. They're... Right finishing up their stuff that night and the next morning they're on their way to work or coming home from work. They're buying that stuff there. That's why it's so easy where they're positioning these stores. They're hitting that market at a convenience level. Not only do customers love it for the ease factor and, you know, it is you're saving a little money there, but investors love it, too. These companies are doing huge business. Their stock prices have gone way up. And in a recession, when everybody else is doing badly, the dollar stores are doing well because there is even more people who are cash strapped and who need a cheap option for household goods. And during the last recession, they did very well. Retail experts are predicting that if we are heading into another recession, which economic signs are pointing to, the dollar stores will do well again. Erica Pandy, retail reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. It has eyes that blink. It's bright yellow. It plays music. And the idea is that by using robots like this one, it can cut down the time of its deliveries. It can cut down the cost for the customer and it can make the delivery system more efficient overall. Joining us now is Ariel Pardas, senior editor for Wired. Thanks for joining us, Ariel. I love stories like this talking about the future of food and the intersection with technology near and dear to my heart are a lot of these delivery services because sometimes we're lazy and you don't want to get out of your house. You just want food brought to you. But we're going to be talking about Postmates. They are one of the leaders in food delivery right now and what their plan is for the future, uh, building a little fleet of delivery robots that look kind of uh, like Wally from the Disney movie almost. It's a, <laughs> it's a cute little bot, but this is what they're planning on helping their drivers deliver food to consumers. So what do we know about this? That's exactly right. Postmates has spent the last year and a half secretly, stealthily, learning how to build its own robots, which is a very ambitious thing, we should say, building robots that operate autonomously and roll down the sidewalk into restaurants picking up food is no easy task. But Postmates has decided that this is its best bet at future-proofing the company. And so it's learned how to build these autonomous bots. As you said, it's very cute. Their design for an autonomous delivery bot looks very anthropomorphic. It has eyes that blink it's bright yellow, it plays music. And the idea is that by using robots like this one, it can cut down the time of its deliveries, it can cut down the cost for the customer, and it can make the delivery system more efficient overall. Right now, Postmates is averaging 4 million deliveries each month in over 550 cities. That is a ton of deliveries, and they're hoping that this will help. They're still gonna use human drivers 
but it'll be something where the driver pulls up on the corner, the bots can go into the restaurant, pick up the food, then come back to it, and then they'll drive it, and the robots will do kind of that the last mile thing and take it to the consumer. But still, I mean, part of the problem is, as you said, and this is what they're working on, is figuring out how these are going to operate in the real world and not get kicked or knocked over or worse, have somebody trip over them. And I just imagine a scenario of a busy city street with a bunch of little tiny robots rolling through the sidewalk and people having to dodge them all the time. Ali Kasani, who's the company's VP of robotics, told me a great story about when they started developing their own delivery bots. They created one that was very small. And one of the first things they realized is that if you make something that's very small or low to the ground, people will absolutely trip over it. So one of the first things they did is they, they raised it up. So the bot they've designed is about a meter tall. You can easily see it out of your peripheral vision. But some people are blind, right? Some people are not yeah. paying attention. Some people are staring at their phones. So another thing they added was speakers that play music. And that's just to get people's attention and alert them that something is sort of rolling down the sidewalk, even if you're preoccupied staring at your phone or you're visually impaired. They've added a strip of LED lights that go around the robot. So that helps to catch people's attention and also sort of telegraph where the robot is going. Um, the LEDs function almost like a turn signal. And it also, of course, has these eyes that blink. And part of the idea there is is also safety-related, which is to say... If this thing can sort of make eye contact with you and you can sort of follow its gaze as it travels down the sidewalk, you can better predict what it's going to do and it's less likely that you're going to run into it. Tell us some of the specifics about the robot itself. Like, what are they using? What kind of sensors are they using to get around? How much food can it carry? All that stuff. Without getting too bogged down into how autonomous robots actually work, this one uses a combination of LiDAR, sonar, computer vision, GPS, and some other sensors to help navigate its space. It can carry up to 50 pounds, which is a lot of food. Yeah, that's, and... pretty, that's pretty good right there. That's, I mean, because <laughs> and... you got to think of how many deliveries it can hold on its little robot body. How many robots can a driver carry in its car? That's going to limit how many deliveries you're going to do as well if you're exclusively using the robot. So 50 pounds is pretty good. Another great feature is that the robot can go 30 miles on a single charge. So they've sort of worked out these kinks to try and economize exactly how many deliveries they can do with an individual bot that's sort of roaming down one particular stretch of the sidewalk. You know, it's interesting that Postmates has started this whole division of its company dedicated to just the robots instead of contracting with another robot maker already and saying, hey, build this for us, then sell it to us and we'll use it. They're doing all of this in-house. And, and, you know, all the other big companies are working on something like this. Uber, Amazon, they're trying to get drones to deliver packages. So everybody is doing this. And it's pretty smart for them to make it a proprietary component of their business. You know, that way they can control everything and they have all the data to support how the deliveries are made and what people want. So it, it makes sense for them to have it in-house. It's worth saying that building delivery robots yourself is an incredibly ambitious thing to do. So originally Postmates had partnered with some other companies. They worked briefly with Starship Technologies, which is one of the premier startups in this space. But eventually the company realized that their secret sauce, the thing that makes Postmates really valuable, is that they know a lot about how people make deliveries. And therefore they know a lot about how delivery robots need to function if they're actually going to work for companies and customers. And and since they have that, they wanted to sort of hold that close to the chest rather than giving that information to another startup. And 
that's part of the reason they've decided to build this stuff in-house rather than using an outside council. Ariel Pardes, senior editor for Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.